Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today is December 4th, 2023. And I'm joined in studio today, as usual, by IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews. And today we're going to talk about a piece that Dr. Matthews has recently written. Bidenomics is G-economics with American characteristics. Now, Dr. Matthews, we're going to need to explain that title. But when we talk about G-economics, we're Mm -hmm. talking about the leader of communist China, Xi Jinping, and uh, But you're going to have to explain this idea of American characteristics, because that's a historical illusion. Yes. If people, if people are familiar with the history there, they'll, they'll recognize it. But what happened was uh, Chairman Mao Zedong, who led the Civil War in right. China. Mao was the, was the uh, communist, communist revolutionary. Right. Who uh, achieved success book. in 1949. Yeah. So he took over as the co- chairman of the Communist Party and ran uh, Communist China till 1976 when he died. And we might mention that uh, just since we learned a few days ago that Henry Kissinger uh, passed away, Henry Kissinger was one for mm-hmm. Richard Nixon who sort of worked in those. Uh, the opening every, to China, he, right, yeah. Right. He opened the door to China and created a, at least ability to be able to talk to them. So uh, when what happened then was that uh, Deng Xiaoping. Okay, let's, let's camp out on Mao for, for okay. because I, I do think that part of our job on this podcast is to sort of sort of give people big context, right? So Mao, of course, was the communist revolutionary, mm-hmm. but Mao was also the guy who was responsible for the re-education camps. Great leap forward. Great leap forward. The cultural revolution. revolution. Millions of people died. Millions of that. people died. Millions of people tortured and killed. If you're looking for the worst example in human history of political power run amok, mm-hmm. probably Maoism is it. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe the killing fields of Cambodia would be second, maybe Hitler would be third, but Maoism and the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution and, and forcing people to go through re-education camps and all that sort of stuff is like the most disreputable part of recent human history. And what happened was that Deng Xiaoping, who was part of the administration, Mao's administration, when the door opened to be able to go to America through Henry Kissinger and then Mm -hmm. Nixon coming there, Deng Xiaoping came to America and looked around and thought, I can't believe this. Yeah. He saw grocery stores with food in them and and other things. And at the time, he was not the leader of China. No, he was not the leader. But he was part of the uh, CCP Yeah, he was part of the leadership. Yeah, right, right. And, and that impressed him. So he came back. He actually fell out with Mao and was, was sent out to a farm for a while. But Mao dies in 76. Deng Xiaoping actually becomes the head of the Communist Party in 1978, so a couple of years later. And he ran from 78 to 89. It was the Tiananmen Square that ended up uh, that problem that ended up right having him step down. Right at the end of his term, yeah. Right. So, so he stepped down. But when he saw that... As his chairman of the Communist Party, he decided to allow some economic freedom in the country. Yeah. And when people came up and said, well, you're a socialist country, you're a communist country, this economic freedom. He said, well, that w- what we've set up is a, is a socialist system with Chinese characteristics, yeah. which means we're socialists, but we're going to allow some economic freedom because yeah. that's what Chinese people do. Exactly. That's so Chinese that, so that's, that is the historical um, reference in the title. Right. Um, but it, the main point of Deng Xiaoping 
was that Deng Xiaoping was the one who essentially moved China off the course of hardcore rote communism right. and said, you're allowed to own property. You're allowed to own a business. You can do some farming you, and get to keep some of you that. You can keep some of your profits. You can try to make a profit. You can invest. And he, he, he took China away from doctrinaire communism and introduced this idea of some capitalist, it was a, it was a some system. free market elements. Exactly. And the question then was, all right, is China eventually going to move to a more free market economy or will it at some point revert back? Yeah. And Deng was out in 89, but for the next two decades, uh, you really had China opening up, freeing yep. up its market some, American businesses going over, setting up mm -hmm. uh, manufacturing and other businesses. And this business. is where the optimistic attitude came from that Americans had toward China. Right. The idea was that China is going to eventually, slowly, gradually open up. I think that was the hope. When yeah. You have not and, and, and the assumption was that economic liberalization will lead to political liberalization. And because we had just seen this happen in Russia, mm -hmm. right? Gorbachev's intention was not necessarily political liberalization. His intention was economic liberalization. But they also ended up with political liberalization. So we sort of assumed that the same thing would happen in China. And it, it began with Deng Xiaoping. Right. And as you say, continued for, for several decades afterward. In really, until Xi. Yeah. Uh, uh, Xi Jinping is uh, moved to the head in 2012. And, of course, it takes a little while to sort of get your grips on everything and get control of everything. Mm -hmm. And so he began slowly to sort of ratchet back some of those reforms. He had, he had a bunch of... Uh, a bunch of "Quote unquote corruption trials yeah. where he put other people, other powerful people in the Chinese Communist Party in prison mm -hmm. or deprived them of that's, power. That's the way you get. That's in, how you consolidate, consolidate your, own your own power. Right. Uh, he started taking over business. So the, what they called the state-owned businesses in China began to grow that number uh, as he began to just sort of basically take control of every aspect of it. So uh, as he's done that." He's embraced a number of things, which I argue is Bidenomics and genomics aren't that far apart, <laughs> because if you look at some of the things they're doing, you would you could say that, well, Biden is sort of following in the path of genomics. Okay. So let, let, let's before you go any further there, let's talk about what you mean by genomics. Mm. What you mean is moving back toward Central political More control. More central control, okay. right. All right. Okay. And so one aspect picking of Picking winners and losers. Picking winners right. and losers. Okay. And one aspect of that, the first one I highlight, is industrial policy. Mm. And so I, I define industrial policy here, the International Monetary Fund. Quote, industrial policy refers to government efforts to shape the economy by targeting specific industries, firms, or economic activities. And it says that key elements of an industrial policy is to is number one enhancing national security by promoting self-sufficiency in key industries two supporting job rich and inclusive growth and three revitalizing left behind communities now if you look at that and, and, and that's sounds like a five-year plan it sounds like <laughs> sounds like five-year plan it found sounds like what biden uh, joe biden would like to do on right. things yeah so i look at this and i thought it's interesting because you can see elements of that in all of joe biden's policies he mm -hmm. doesn't go as far as he he doesn't have right. the power 
to do that because right. we still have independent courts here, mm-hmm. mostly. And separation of powers. Separation of powers and so forth. But um, when you look at, at uh, Xi's industrial policy, embrace of industrial policy, and his efforts to centralize the economy, putting the, the Chinese government over so many aspects of it, and then you look at what Joe Biden wants to do, I mean, uh, passing infrastructure bills, passing the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, going out saying on semiconductor bill, we're going to let you, we're going to put a lot of money for country. We want to build building semiconductors ourselves right. here on the great U.S., not over yeah. in the country. Yeah. And we'll provide you with a lot of money to do that. But to do that, you've got to set up, uh, you've got to set up uh, places for people to bring their kids. You've got to be able to. Uh, do daycare. Daycare. You've got to have daycare. <laughs> you've got to have, uh, we got to make sure you're in, you're hiring the right people, mm-hmm. which means trying to reach out to min- various minorities and other and you don't and you don't get the grants unless you're a union shop all of that unless you pay of. union standard wages yep. Yep. and all these sorts of things right you got to do all of those things to meet our goals and if you do those things then you get the government money that is industrial policy yeah it's interesting isn't it i don't i don't want to derail you because i know you've got other points you want to make but it's interesting that when a president is campaigning or when a president comes into office and then they say I'm going to shape the country in the following ways. I'm going to shape the country in these four ways or these five ways or whatever. You're already wrong, right? <laughs> because that's not the job of the president, right? To shape the country. Right. And, and it's not the job of Washington, D.C. to shape the country. You know, our, our system is a bottom-up system. Our system is we the people will shape the country based on our choices and our investments and our priorities and where we choose to put our labor and all that kind of thing. So w- when you come into office and you essentially say, I have a plan and I'm going to move the country in this direction, that is, um, that is, it's like a five-year plan. Mm-hmm. It really is. Like, so if, so if you're Biden or Obama and you say, we're going to have a green revolution, yeah. we just flat are going to have a green revolution. doesn't matter whether it makes sense or not. doesn't matter whether it makes economic sense or not. doesn't matter whether the voters support it doesn't matter whether the voters support it or not. We're going to have a green transition. We're just flat going to do it. That sounds way more like a CCP or a USSR five-year plan than it does sound like a free market development. And that actually take us, takes us to the second point, which is you start abandoning or bypassing democracy. Mm-hmm. Now, you hear Biden com- bellyache all the time about how democracy is under threat. But democracy is not only people electing representatives, but then the elected representatives being able to vote for various yep. policies and so forth. Yep. That's what a representative democracy does, which is what we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet Biden has come in and as, as he said, this is the plan we're going to do. We're going to try to do that. I'm not if I can't get it passed through Congress. I'm going to issue Congress it. doesn't act. I will. I right? will. That's I right. I have a pen. I, and a, I yeah. have a pen and a phone. That's right. Obama. Yeah. And so I'm going to do these things anyway. Even if it, if Congress doesn't do it, we're going to just look for ways to get around Congress and do it on our own. Yeah, that's a bigger threat to democracy, I would argue, than any concerns oh, I, that I have with with various states who say, well, maybe we want to have a, a, a maybe want to shut the polls at seven o'clock as opposed to eight o'clock no, in the evening. You 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 are precisely right. I was listening to a podcast a week or so ago. I mean, I, I I like to listen to like nerdy political philosophy podcasts, and the question was. What is the most important structural defense of liberty in the United States? And the question was, 
if you ask this question, most people would say the Bill of Rights, right? But mm-hmm. the argument was no, not the Bill of Rights, that the most important structural protection we have in this country for individual liberty is separation of powers. Right. And the point was that there's any number of countries out there that have really great bills of rights, but they don't mean anything. It's just written on paper. Right. Because there's no there's no separation of powers to protect their rights. And the, the point was literally there are totalitarian countries out there who have a better Bill of Rights on paper than we do. Right. But they don't have separation of powers, so the Bill of Rights means nothing. So if you go to uh, Putin's Russia, mm-hmm. the um, the legislature there generally rubber stamps anything yeah. he does. And then if there's issues raised in the court, the courts are Putin's appointees right. and they're going to so rubber it does, stamp it. It doesn't matter what rights you supposedly have. There is no separation of powers to protect your rights. There's authoritarianism. So the question was, how was Biden going to do that? And I'm reading first day in office, first day in office, he issued an executive order, modernizing regulatory review, he called it. And I'm quoting from this. These recommendations should provide concrete suggestions on how the regulatory review process can promote public health and safety, economic growth, social welfare, racial justice, environmental stewardship, human dignity, equity, and the interest of future generations, close quote. So what he's saying is, I'm, he wanted to review the, uh, he wanted to reform uh, regulation process, the, uh, policies mm. so that they, in essence, adopt his agenda, and then they then promote his agenda, even if you can't get it through Congress. Yep. This is one of the reasons why, I think one of the things we should be the most sensitive to is when one branch of government tries to exceed its mandate, Mm -hmm. right? And where we most often see this these days is the executive branch saying, you know, Congress won't act, so I will, Mm -hmm. right? Or Congress won't pass legislation, so I'm going to write an executive order, that kind of thing, right? right? And thank God for the U.S. courts. Yes, exactly. Because they have stepped up and stopped him and stopped Obama and sometimes stopped Trump. They're doing that now, and we're grateful for that. But in the past, the courts have actually been the primary problem, right, as far as exceeding mandates, where you had courts that would impose things on on the people that should have been done through legislation. Mm -hmm. There's any number of examples of this, Roe versus Wade being one of them, but there's many of these, right? So I, I think that you know, I, I've, I've, I've given a lot of talks to groups about this, that con- as conservatives, we should be process people, not end result people. Mm-hmm. Um, we should be really, really careful guardians of process. At any time, any branch of government is trying to exceed its reach, whether it's a president trying to overreach the legislature, mm-hmm. whether it's the judicial branch trying to overreach the legislature, or whether it's the legislature not stepping up and doing its job. Those are the kind of things yeah. we need to be like we, really, not really to, sensitive to. We haven't worried, had to worry about the legislature overreaching no, they its don't power want to. because no. they don't want to. No, right they now. don't want to. They, they, they have figured out that they can get elected and they can pass laws and that if anything goes wrong, they can Except, point the finger at somebody else. Yeah, they, the agency did this. Yeah. That wasn't me. And by the way, uh, this, we should do a podcast on this specifically, but there are several cases coming up before the Supreme Court this term mm-hmm. that directly address this, this issue of regulatory agencies, which are in the executive branch, that essentially have their own judicial systems. You have administrative judges. Right. The SEC has administrative judges. The FTC has administrative judges. And if if the SEC charges you with something, you can be judged by an SEC judge, and you don't have 
the normal due process rights that mm-hmm. you have, you don't have. And you don't have the right to a trial by jury, which is in the Constitution, right? And, I mean, there's a specific case coming up before the Supreme Court where if the court really went all the way and did the right thing, they could find that it is unconstitutional for administrative agencies to convict anybody of anything, Mm -hmm. that that's got to be done through the judicial branch. So this whole idea of the administrative state, and, and, and neither you nor I are in sympathy with sort of the new right populism that's going on right now, but this is something we have in common. And that is that the administrative state is a huge problem, mm-hmm. and it's almost certainly unconstitutional, and it's being used. It's 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 part of part of Biden's agenda and part of Bidenomics, and and this idea where you're saying that Bidenomics is is reminiscent of G economics, is this idea of being able to dictate things right from the executive branch and ignoring separation of powers right and ignoring constitutional rights. And there was a, a Supreme Court case here a f- few months back where the Supreme Court found against the EPA. And I, I saw an interview with the director of the EPA and said, ah, oh, well, we'll just go look at another way to get around that. Right, and we'll right. do it. So the court said we can't do this, so we'll look for another There's way. There's not supposed to be another way around. That's, <laughs> that's the whole idea. The whole idea here is if, is if uh, you know, we've got three branches of government, and to get anything done, you really need at least two of the branches to agree. Yeah. Right? You, you, need, um, you need the legislature to pass a law, and you need the president to sign it. Or you need the judicial branch to find that a particular law is unconstitutional, right? And the president to not, you know, uh, or, or Congress not to impeach the judges, you know? And, and, and so, but, but you don't, we don't have a system where if the— we're not supposed to have a system where if the normal process doesn't give you the result you want, you get to you get to try another process. You just attack from a different direction. Exactly, exactly. That is not the way things are supposed to work. If there's if what you want cannot be derived by a consensus of the governed mm-hmm. through the legislature, the executive branch, and the judicial branch, then you're not supposed to get what you want. And so the third one we'll look at is government mandated boondoggles. And in China, you had Xi who wanted to be, he wanted a real estate boom. And so that money went out, various organizations that was funding these things. And you have all kinds of buildings, both for residential and for commercial and so forth, being built in a lot of cities. And they're empty. You have thousands of buildings out there that are just empty. The towns are empty. They're calling them ghost cities because they look like they should be a modern metropolis, but nobody's living there. And, the, and they're already starting to crumble and they're collapse starting to crumble. because they were, they were not just built for no legitimate market reason, but they were also built crappily. <laughs> and so, when, and, and just generally when you leave buildings uh, vacant, things start happening mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And so people who had paid for these things, and now some of these companies that were financing these, some of the cor- corporations, the companies that were building them, they have gone bankrupt and they can't finish it. And people, some people have paid for their building and they can't get in because the company that was building it has gone bankrupt. Yeah, there's, there's a very real chance that the middle of the 21st century is going to be the collapse of the quote unquote Chinese miracle, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the middle of the 21st century is when we're going to find out that, no, it turns out that this doesn't work. Yeah. And, and it's, so, it's not just because of misallocation of investment, government determined misallocation of investment and right. malinvestment. 
but also collapsing populations, um, a a population that is quickly becoming geriatric without the social systems in place to deal with it. And and just the change in the economy. Yeah. As as Xi has gotten more aggressive and has done several things, including their lockdowns for pandemics, uh, U.S. companies are increasingly pulling their manufacturing and other things out of there, moving into Vietnam and other places. And so where you, where you, as you might have said at one point, well, those cities might have been, they might have been thriving if you'd had booming economies yeah. going there. Yeah. But as she has gotten more aggressive, countries are saying, right, we're going to back off here because if he, they end up attacking Taiwan or something like that, yeah. it's going to create all kinds of problems. We don't want to get all our, our manufacturing caught up in China. Yeah. I mean, Field of Dreams is one of my favorite movies. But if you build it, they will come. It's just obviously not true. <laughs> it's just obviously not true. And again, you have these ghost cities, right? That were, the, the assumption was somehow that if we build this stuff, they will suddenly become filled up with productive human beings. And it, it just doesn't work. And so you're comparing Bidenomics to Z-economics. And, you know, I think you would probably say that Bidenomics is like, you know, a, a shadow of Z-economics mm-hmm. or whatever. But fundamentally, the same logical problems exist for both. Right. That it, it's it's trying to run things from the top down. It's trying to dictate things from the top with no relationship to actually consumer demand, right, or, or market investment. It's Which, government-directed investment rather than market driven investment which is where we are in the United States yeah. with all Biden's green mm-hmm. energy stuff. Yeah. So he wants people he's pushing the car companies to create more yeah, electric Yeah, we're seeing vehicles. this really severely with with electric cars, right? right? As 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 co- companies are coming up saying we just, you know, people don't want to buy them. Yeah. Uh, we've been making them, we've we're transitioning to that, but we can't get people to buy those yeah. things. In part because that's not the infrastructure out there to be able to charge your cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's several problems with it. So it is uh, making the batteries. We've got to be able to make the batteries, but the batteries are being made over in China. Yeah. And we want to be able to make them here. So Ford and others have tried to say, well, we'll create a battery factory. But then they have the union strike and other things, and they're having to spend more. And so now they're having to scale back all those. The plants. electric car thing to me is such an such a good example of what we're trying to what we're, the points we're trying to make, which is we don't have anything wrong with electric cars. No, but. It ought to be driven by the market. It ought to be driven from the ground up. People say, I want to, you know, an entrepreneur comes along, like Elon Musk with Tesla, right? right? And, and he's, he's done very well yeah, with And that. he says, okay, I'm going to make electric cars, right? And there's a market out there for electric cars. Okay, great. It's wonderful, right? I got no problem with that. I could see myself driving an electric car at some point, right? But th- when you get into this problem is when you start getting these government mandates and the government says, you have to do this by this date, and the, ma- the the manufacturers say, well, we, we have to get along with the government. We have to follow the Absolutely. government's mandates. GM is now General Motors. I mean, it was General Motors. Now it's going to be government, government Motors. Right. Exactly right, right, right. And th- they're just unrealistic. And th- th- the reason they're unrealistic is that they are not driven by feedback from consumers. It's driven by a political agenda from on high in Washington, right. not from consumer feedback. And the beauty of the market is that Consumers send signals to producers what they want, mm-hmm. what they're willing to pay for, and then consumers respond to those signals. When you try to run things from from Washington, D.C., when you try to run things from an executive branch or from an administrative agency, 
you're, you're just you're doing an end run around the normal signaling from consumers. And you're trying to say, you're going to like this whether you like it or not. And consumers have a way of saying, no, we aren't. And so it's politically driven, not consumer driven. Mm-hmm. And so they throw billions, hundreds of billions of dollars at these various projects when they don't work as they had anticipated or when consumers aren't responding, then the government either has to, they either have to, well, we really made a mistake, but the government doesn't like doing that. So they do various things to try to mandate you to go out and buy that car and do other things because it's good for you or whatever. We're going to well, do what, something. They, what they tend to do is outlaw the alternative, right? right? What, what they tend to do is pass a which law. Which they're trying to do. You, yeah, By right. a certain time, you won't be able to have a, a well, gas. Well, like, it's like LEDs, right? I mean, I love LED light bulbs. I've replaced all the almost all the bulbs in my house with LEDs. But at some point, the government said, you know what? We're going to ban the manufacturing of incandescent light bulbs, Okay. Okay, great. Well, you, well, you've just rigged the game, right? You've just introduced a bug into the computer simulation. You know, you, you know now you, you're, you're totally ignoring consumer feedback. You're totally ignoring consumer choice. You're basically mm-hmm. saying we're going to make your, the, the alternative illegal. You're going to have no choice but to consume what the government wants you to consume. And you have to do that in part to save face because you don't want to, you don't want right. to step up and say, well, we th- we thought you'd all like these, but it, Our plan it turns failed. out you didn't. Our plan failed exactly. Well, I think you make a I think you make a completely legitimate point that Bidenomics is sort of mirroring G economics in 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 uh, in in the fundamental flaws right, right of the of the idea. Okay, so and your and your piece Bidenomics is G economics. This is in the Hill, right? So the Hill dot com. If people want to read that piece, they can go to the Hill dot com, where mm-hmm. you have a regular weekly column. Mm-hmm. Uh, very good. I appreciate that. And I think, you know, I love these, um, the fact that these give us opportunities to sort of use current events to talk about some of the principles that we actually care about at IPI. All right. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode. We would invite you to check out our website at IPI.org and sign up there if you'd like to receive notices of all of our new podcasts, new content, and upcoming events. We are definitely uh, political and economic nerds. We like political philosophy and economic philosophy and market market philosophy. So you find lots of material at our website on those topics. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. And you can do that at IPI.org. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.